The Builders, Gedolim who created movements and shaped our world. Presented by Gedalia Gutenberg and Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. Good evening and welcome back to all our listeners wherever this episode finds you from corporate boardroom to suburban dining room. On behalf of our global audience, welcome back to you, Rabbi Fraim Zamgalinski. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Rabbi Gedalia Gutentag. Yes, and it's always a pleasure to hear those warm, comforting words from you. Over here in Mishpachah studio, it's Thursday night. The Lel Shishi aromas of Yerushalayim can't waft their way all the way up here to the eighth floor of the office tower. But it's the best location for this episode because looking down on Harnoff, the subject to Ravad Yosef, a legendary Poisek and leader, and crucially, preeminent builder of the Sephardic road, the world, lived just down the road. So as ever in this series, we're going to start from the end. And I'm going to throw you right in the deep end over the head, Rabbi Ephraim. What was the most, let's, let's, we all know, the figure of Ravad Yosef. What was the most significant contribution of Ravad Yosef to shaping and creating the Jewish world that we know today? Abdali, I knew that you were going to ask me that question. As, as usual, and I'm going to disappoint you. Uh, I hope not. What does that mean? What can that possibly mean? I was really putting my head to it for the past week because I knew we were going to talk about Ravadia, and I had that question of yours ringing in my mind, and uh, I tried to, to concentrate on one singular contribution or, or a few, and when you talk about Ravadia yourself, it's extremely difficult. Because, let me give you an example. People tend to say that today the Sephardi Chinuch world in Eretz Yisrael is due solely to Ravad Yosef. And we know that's not true. Well, hold on, in, in sheer numbers, in, in terms of numbers, va- vast numbers. Vast numbers, right, 100%. Do we? Okay, right. let's get back to numbers later. Right, but I think that's a mistake because even Ravad himself, mm-hmm. when he came to Eretz Yisrael, he even wrote about it and spoke about it publicly. The people who saved him mm-hmm. were Ashkenazim by the name of Rav Moshe Parosh. Do you ever hear that name? Rav Moshe Parosh, the grandfather of today's... Mayor Parosh. Mayor Parosh. Father of Menachem Parosh. Right. And he... He was a, a good leader. Right. And he became like a, a deputy mayor of Yerushalayim. But, mm-hmm. but I think the majority of his years, he founded and directed a, a Talmud Torah for a Dota Mizrach. Svardim. Svardim. I think it was called B'nai Tzion. Does that still exist? Does that uh, institute? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not right. sure. Okay. Check, check that out. And Ravadi learned there. Mm-hmm. And that was a savior for many Sephardi boys who lived in Yerushalayim. So it's very difficult to say that Ravadi Yosef solely built the Sephardi empire. I think it's always difficult to say that anyone solely did anything because right, right, right. one I, person... Don't worry, I am not going to diminish Ravadia's role at all. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show you how great it was. Okay. Okay. But what I'm trying to say is that if you try to confine it in like to one area, 
you're not going to get there. Let's go to another area, okay? We're talking about Kiruv Rechaikim, okay? We can say Ravad Yosef is responsible for the vast movement of Balei Tshuva among the traditional Israelis, which is true. And his Talmud uh, of uh, Reuven. Oh, Givaldik, I knew you were going to mention that name. Because I talked to him recently a few months ago. Ravulim Elbaz, Elbaz was a Navardika. Okay. He was a Navardika. However, let's try to get to the point. Without Ravavadya, it wouldn't have worked. And what I mean to say is that it's really a matana from HaKadosh Baruch Ravavadya was a certain personality who was so unique in his geoyness and his personality, the way he approached people and the way he gave shurim and the, even the way he carried himself. I don't know if you ever were zeichet to see... Uh, I was going to ask you that. You're Yerushalmi for many decades, right? Yeah. Did you see him? You interact with him? I can tell you one story. Go on. As a young child, probably bar mitzvah age, there was a siyum uh, It was one of the years of the siyum in Yerushalayim, and there were all kinds of siyumim all over. And uh, Rabbi Nachman Porish made a siyum It was in where today Minchas Yitzchak is. There used to be the old uh, zoo, Jerusalem Zoo. Oh, really? <laughs> in that area. <laughs> you don't even know about it, right? I don't know about it. That whole area, Tnuva, that whole area on... Uh, so basically, if you so. sat in you know, any Haredi neighborhood, you'd hear the lions roar or the rhinoceros do whatever uh, they... By the way, Ramir Chodesh is Levaya. Yeah. So Rabbi his son-in-law, was Masbid. So he started off the Hesbid. I remember till today, he said, he screamed out, Abba! You know, his dramatic. Uh, yeah, it's, it's dramatic. Right. He screamed, Abba! He was talking about Ramir, his, his father-in-law. And all of a sudden, you heard the lion responding to him. The lion all of a sudden heard this this roar, <laughs> and you heard the lion responding. That's an amazing that. thing, because, you know, if you go to the, sorry, totally, totally off the top of me, if you go to the biblical zoo, like most zoos, you'll find that the lions are the least impressive creature. Right. They lie there and they shluff. Right. So basically, there's one time in history at Romeo Chodesh's Leviah, right. through the roar, the Leonin, <laughs> Leonin roar of Rebarch <laughs> obviously the lion woke him up. The lion obviously recognize a certain type of kinship. Right. In any case, so he made a, like a massive Siyumashah, so Menachem Parish made there, so in the, in the uh, Degel Yushalayim, that was the name of it. And there were all the Ashkenazic Dolim were there, Rapsham Zalman was there, everyone was there. And all of a sudden they announced that Ravadia was coming. And I'm not talking about the Tzibu that was standing there were not Tzfardim. They were pure Ashkenazim, Hasidim, Litvisha. And when Ravadia walked in, you could not ignore it. A tremendous presence. Tremendous presence. It was like a king walking in. Yeah. And, you know, you can imagine the way he dressed With all the, the glima, the, this beautiful, you know, the robe and everything. That, right. that only added to it, the oriental impression. Right, but he had this presence with him. And let's go back to our topic. So I'm saying the uniqueness of his geoyness, the way he spoke, his personality, the way he approached people, and the combination of his malchus together with being so approachable to people— this was like a one-time matana that Akash gave to Klal Yisrael. And his personality took all these efforts that we were talking about, even Ashkenazi efforts, right? And Ravuvan Elbaz's efforts. And it turned into a sheer power that created this tremendous movement. So he was a figurehead around which people were able to come. It was more than a figurehead, because usually you talk about a figurehead as someone who doesn't really have any... Uh, right. I, I don't mean that. Let's use a better word, to galvanize something. Sometimes you have someone who electrifies everyone. Exactly. That, that, that is the word. That is the word. He electrified. When he was in the area, 
there was electricity in the area. Mm. Just another another story. You asked me stories about my childhood. I remember going to the Kaisel one time, and it just struck me weird at that time. But when you look into the Sephardi Masoiris of Kibbut Arav, mm. you can understand it. But I remember seeing Ravadi walking into the Kaisel Plaza, like before the Kaisel over there, and people swarming over to him to uh, to kiss his hand. To kiss his hands, right. So his hands, his right hand was actually protruding forward. He held it like that. He held like, it like that. Like that right. and, and anyone who came close, he like, he put, he, he put he it went. into his mouth. You understand <laughs> what I'm saying? So, you know, to us it would look weird, but if you get the, the concept of the Kavod Arav, he wasn't shying away from that. And he, and he wanted to instill the Kavod Harabonim into the Tzibur. And he managed to do that. And he really brought covered back to the Rabbonus, to the Tigdali so, soil. So, I mean, we'll perhaps get to that a bit later, the idea that the Sephardi world was at once in a weak position, but at the same time, unlike the Ashkenazi world, was more open, was closer to, as it were, return to its roots, and that he was able to, therefore, capitalize on that. But I want to say... You know, I'm also, as we try to do in this series, to define exactly what it was that, in retrospect, a certain figure, in this case, Ravad Yosef, brought to the table and left us with his legacy in terms of the movements he created. And so wrestling with this as well, and we talk about he's a a major Pisek. There were those who disagreed with this Psakim, but no one could ignore him. He was too big, like like had banks. They said the two after the subprime crisis in 2008, they said the two banks too big to fail, right? The government had to rescue them. He was too big to ignore. And groundbreaking Psakim that I just reading about that came later in his life. But this is the first thing that came to my mind because I never I never had any contact. One of the great regrets, I lived in Yerushalayim at the same time as Ravad Yosef. I probably walked past his house. He lived in Harnoff, right, just down the road. And I never saw him. In fact, the closest I think I got to him was one of the was unfortunately when he was he was Nifta, and I lived for many years near the junction, the Barry Line Junction, which became you know some people call it still today Tzomit Maran, the Maran Junction after Ravad Yosef, because there there was. 800,000 people, apparently. That was the largest Levi. It was the largest Levi, but it was probably the largest public gathering of any description. Anyway, it's got to be one in the history of the state of Israel. And I flew back. I remember I flew back. The Leviah entered at something like 11 o'clock at night, 2 o'clock in the morning. Three hours later, I arrived after being overseas. I arrived in Sanhedria. And literally, I went down to that junction then of something. must have gone walk through the junction night, I remember around the lampposts were almost like you have snow that forms drifts, right? High drifts around a pole or something. There were huge drifts, snow drifts of paper and of rubbish. The sheer number of people who'd been there created this ankle deep piles. And as I said, normally you don't, you know, rubbish in the streets, garbage in the streets of Yerushalayim is not something you want to see. But in terms of a faint echo of what went on then, a few hours before, 800,000 Jews, and they were and showing his vast, vast appeal. And because there had never been a figure like this who was at once such an integral part of the Torah world and a builder of Torah and also a political force and a societal force. And he's a much bigger phenomenon, which we're going to have to get up to. This is just a long introduction to just share with you my particular story over here, which is, as I say, I never met him, but I did a few years ago sit down and talk to an interview and have an opportunity to talk at length with his son, who's um, the current uh, the current Rishonatian Rishonatian Israeli chief rabbi, Rav Yitzchak Yosef. 
And I remember actually when the door opened. By the way, Rabbi Yitzchak himself learned in Ashkenazi Yeshiva. Hebron, as he, as he said. I think he learned in, in, in Azata first, in Itivot, no? I don't remember. I think he learned Rabbi Yitzchak Yeah, that's right, he did say. And it was a very interesting conversation in terms of the way he described he got into Halacha. He said everyone expected him as his father's son to know, to know Halacha, halacha <laughs> including the Rosh Yeshiva. He said once the, the electricity went off in Hebron Yeshiva over Friday night. And then the hot plates or whatever it is, the question was, and then it went on on its own, right? Uh, they turned it on, the city turned it on. Right. And then the question was, what is the status of the food? Regarding Shahia, yeah. They came to him to ask. They came to him to ask. He said, you must know something. Now, it happened to be that his father had said he was working on some chuvas. He was helping, uh, I think it became Yelkut Yosef, based on that, right? As for him, he was actually had the chuva that his father, he said, I didn't know halacha. People expected me to just as my father said, I didn't know halacha. But he said that was one of the first times that he was able to answer the question just because he actually had that tshuva in front of him. Wow. And that was his entry into the world of halacha because he got a love for it in that way, which is an incredible. He said, up to then I was learning the kutsot and the nitivot and you know, whatever he was learning. I don't remember he said a kutsot and the sivas or whatever. It was a fascinating conversation. But I just remember when I walked into that room, First, there was this incredible moment. Well, firstly, I had to, the door opened and the Kazakhstani uh, ambassador came out. I, d- I do remember that, right? He comes out and then I ca- catch a glimpse of Ravir Yosef sitting there. And there was this kind of moment, which is as much as you know, that he looks like his father. You know, he looked like his father wearing the same robes as his father, sitting under a giant portrait of his father. As much as you know that's about to happen, when you actually saw, I actually saw it, I thought, oh. You know, there, there it was. That was, that was, it was, it, that was a, We call that du- 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 It's interesting. Before we began to teach rabbi, people didn't realize that. Right. And I think, what's his name? Ravati had an older son. It was uh, one of his older sons, Rav Yaakov. Rav Yaakov. He was tremendous Tamut Chacham. Tremendous Tamut Chacham. Also held very extreme political views to the right side. Right. Which is un- very unlike his father. No, and he disagreed with his father publicly mm-hmm. on the Zinyanim. And there were many years that they... There was no contact between them. Really? Right, right before he was nifter, they, they, they came back. This is so interesting. I just remember I was in a chabur in Mir. I had a neighbor who was, uh, a guy sat next to me for years in the same chabur, the same bench. And he used to, he was, a, he was your shalmia, you know, used to go here, go there. He was an interesting, interesting and interested person. And he came back once, I remember him, this years ago, raving. He literally, where did Yaakov Yosef give Shurim and Musayof or something? In the, or yeah, the, he was Bukharim. the rav of what we call Gushmonim. Today it's called Givat Moshe. I think that's the, the area so like anyway, right before bar So anyway, he'd heard him give a shir. And he, you know, he'd heard of Rav Yaakov Yosef, but he'd never actually heard him. His ideas was like his father, they say. But it was incredible. Listen to that. I just remember this. This Avrich was sitting there and he said, I could not believe what happened. He said he was sitting there and they were, it was a share, but some, you know, whoever it is was was, was on there. It wasn't Major Tamad Khan was sitting, but he said, whatever halachas they were doing, they would start with one subject. And he said, they finished another. And he said, what do you want to learn next? And they threw out a subject. And then he would literally, he said, it was without any sforim, would rattle off everything from the Gemara, Rishonim, Achronim, clear, cold, wow. just cold. And he said it was just on demand it was. And that was Rav Yaakov Yosef. Yaakov Yosef, the oldest son of Rav Yosef, who was who predeceased him. Right. Anyway, long, I think we're going through parentheses within parentheses over here. But what I mean to say is that when Rav Yitzchak Yosef, I was looking through the interview, just in preparation for a session, session today, I looked through the interview, and, and the article I wrote about Rav Yitzchak Yosef a few years ago, I somehow missed out this incredible story. I, I'm, I'm just trying to remember, I was looking for it, it's not there. 
But I distinctly remember the following thing. Rav Yitzchak Yosef told me that when he remembers when he was a little boy, and I think he was one of the younger children. He's one of the Rav Yosef's younger children. Um, he went to there was one of the big a levaya of one of the big. Uh, it was in the, clearly in the probably the sixties or fifties, whenever it was. One of the big gedolim of the generation. I don't remember if he said it may have been of Tzvi Pesach Frank. I don't remember who, but he said. It was so central, and this figure was so central that everyone who was anyone in this... It makes sense, because yeah. Archipus of Frank was like a father figure to Rabbi Yosef. Right. right, maybe I'm just throwing that in because of that. But anyway, he said everyone, the whole Haredi world in Eretz Yisrael was there. Ashkenazim, Sfaradim, Hasidim, Litvaks, everyone was there. And it went on for hours, and they only spoke Yiddish. Right? And because that's what the Ashkenazi world then back then did. Compare that to Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky's Levaya, where there wasn't even one Hespit in Yiddish. Correct. That shows yeah. the metamorphosis that the, right. the, the, the Ashkenazi world was thinking. But back in the day, this was the fact. They spoke Yiddish. And Rovadia didn't understand Yiddish, he said. He stood there. He said his, uh, his son, Rav Yitzchak Yosef, said he stood there, you know, whatever, going through his learning in his head, thinking learning. He said he stood there for a long time. And his son, Rav Yitzchak was then a little boy, looked and he was so embarrassed and angry uh, for, on behalf of his father. And he said to his father, Abba, he said, why did they know that you and all of us don't understand Yiddish? They know we're here. And why do they have to, why do they insist? And so why don't they take us into account and speak, you know, speak, speak Hebrew, which is what we all understand. And Ravad Yosef's answer was, he said, you'll see there'll come one day that then however many B'nai Torah who are here over here, mostly Ashkenazim back in the day, there'll be far, far more Sephardi B'nai Torah. Right? And after, I think I mentioned that to you, that story. And it just, for me, that is the, the background, the drive that drew everything that he it, did. It's fascinating that he yeah. really believed in it. I mean, he was... That was absolutely fascinating because it was, it was, it was as we say in the last episode, we had the Ponovich Sharov right. with his Demyonis, with his dreams and Chalomus and his vision about building a even they all laughed at him. If he would have, maybe he he voiced that, as you say. Who could have said back in the whenever it would? I don't. When was Rav Pesach in, in, in the fifties or sixties? Whenever it Probably, was, yeah. right? There was no chance. Any any the, the Torah world was an Ashkenazi creation. It was a staffed by Ashkenazim because that's who was interested. And what was the situation today, numbers wise? Do we know anything? So if you look at the the Hebrew mishpacha, every uh, like Elul's man, they put out the numbers of the. The Bochum going up to yeshivas. And every year there are new Sephardi yeshivas opening up. Yeshivas Tanes, Yeshivas Doilas. The numbers keep on going up. So I can't give you the, the precise numbers, but it's probably even or maybe even bigger. But it's going up constantly. So, I mean, this is whether it's not a numbers game, and yet he saw it as such. His point was he had great respect, obviously, for Israel and et cetera, from the, from the, and the great people, the Kadolim. If you're talking about the Shiva world, yeah. by the way, we have to repeat what I said before. It's weird because the Rosh Shivas of the Sephardi Shiva world are not necessarily his Talmudim, or I can say even more than that, they are definitely not his Talmudim because all the Tolidanos who are the major Rosh Hashivas in, in, in the Sephardi world, they all come from, from Ashkenazi uh, 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 background. From Panovich. From Panovich. I think some of them had a, a Sandland England connection. That was the Talidana branch there. Yeah. Right. So it's interesting. So the Rabbeim might be coming from Ashkenazi background, but to take all these numbers together and make them into one Tzibur, that was a Ravadia. But I, th- I think, and to me, when he said, we're going to have more than that one day, you know, a visionary, but it was 
that was seems to have been what drove him through everything. Because what he eventually accomplished as a personal, as opposed to himself, and as and creating Shas, the Shas Party, as a political movement that would fight for the rights and get the funding to set up this vast network of institutions that, that exists today as actually headquartered uh, not so far down the road over here along in, uh, along in Givat Shol. In other words, when you look at Ravadia as the leader of a social or socio-religious movement or as a political actor, which he was by for decades of his life in, in, in the most powerful way through the Shaz Party and, 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 and in that way, that misses the point because for everything it was driven, driven right from the beginning by saying the Sephardi world has lost. He said, and he used this phrase, to, to return. He had many meanings for that. Well, what did that mean? To restore the crown so, of so the Sephardi Some of the meanings had a halachic meaning, right? like uh, to bring back the covenant of Maran Bet Yosef to its uh, original glory that the Psakim will go or follow Maran, which we will talk well, about. Let's talk about that separately, which is a very, very fundamental area. But that, that was one of the The other one was, uh, like you said, to bring the, the Sephardi Torah world, the Chinuch world, and also the pride of the Sephardim, which is not something that you can dismiss. I mean, if you take that away, then you're taking away a very, very important element of, of the Shas party, which is the Sephardi pride as just being people that you have to relate to. You, you have to understand, Dalia, if the, the Matzav jury here in Eretzisol, at the time of the Akamas and Medina, so put aside religious and non-religious, okay? I'm saying even within the secular society, right, the Sephardim had no place in the leadership, if you're talking about who was like the first major Sephardi minister in the Medina, we're talking about when Begin came to uh, 1977. In 1977, which is decades after the. So, the in other words, for 30 years, the place was ruled, more than 30 years, but the place was ruled by the secular Labour Party who were a white. Who are a white elite or Ashkenazi elite in that in that way? Hundred percent, hundred percent. They have been well jumping ahead of ourselves, but the Shas have. There's been repeated calls for Shas to. You see that politically, they every so often they re-embrace this narrative of we're standing up for the Sephardim and for the Mizrahim, as they're called, right? The, the Jews from the East, etc. And I think one very notable part of that, I think it was about 2015 when it was very, very difficult, that political campaign. I remember, if I'm not mistaken, Derry, uh, the Shas leader, Arya Derry, came up with a, with his slogan. What well, was actually the, the broadcast on the radio? You heard him speaking and he's Moroccan. He's born Moroccan. He's got a heavy accent. He does not sound like an Israeli, right? He's got Moroccan over it. And he said, Ani Arya Machluf Derry, right? <laughs> And he was there. He's very proud was, about proud about no, that. No, but that was, a, that was an emphasis. His middle name is Makhlouf. Don't right. mess with me. I'm an Eastern Jew and I'm proud of it. Right. And this is what this is about. So that has been an undercurrent, as you say. Ravadi understood that. He understood that. And he thought it was important to Absolutely. restore the Sephardi dignity. Because even, they've been Even aside yeah. from the religious... Uh, yeah. Uh, that he was doing. And I mean, I had a conversation, I think, recently with one of the young members of the, you know, they've got a whole new young guard in the Shas party. And one of the Chavakanesa, I forget who it was, he was saying, look, here we are, 70 something years after, 75 years after the creation of the state of Israel, we had a Supreme Court. We've got no Supreme Court justices in a country in which it's actually majority non-Ashkenazi, right? Right, right. right? We've got no, no Supreme Court justices who are Sephardi, right? And so I think that's true, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, the point is, there's no one out there carrying this flag for it. So you say it's as much a movement of social, I don't know, you don't have to call it social justice. It's, it's wrong. It's the wrong term. But it, I'm not sure if Ravadi would have created the movement just for that. Right. But once the movement was alive, 
and active, this was one of the uh, achievements and one of the goals. He probably felt that, that it was important for Yiddishkeit as well, because once you give them the, their unique pride in what they are, then they're not embarrassed because the majority of Svartim are traditional. Give them back their pride. They're willing to express their connection to the religion, which has happened, by the way, in the last uh, the last few decades. You know, even even in the entertainment world, you're having these uh, traditional singers who, up until a certain point, were just singing like uh, secular, totally secular songs. Mm-hmm. And today, you're having this this uh, mahapecha. If if you just recall the name of Yishai Rubo, who you probably uh, sure, interviewed. Sure. Did you interview him? No, I didn't. I saw an interview with him, and it was very inspiring because uh, you know he's totally in that world. Right. But the messages that he's giving out to people who look like secular yeah, yeah. Israelis are messages of emuna and betachan. I was very, very impressed by that. Well, I mean, if we're going down that route, there is a much more secular Israeli singer who produced a hit quite a few years ago, which has sung widely in the religious world, and you can hear it in Chasnas as well, right. right? And it's incredible to see, to understand that the tens of thousands of people singing that uh, at the Stars concerts, they're comfortable, as it were, they look outwardly secular, right? And they might vote secular, but they're comfortable with messages of much more of belief. In it. That's a direct outcome of the fact yeah. that traditional Israelis are not afraid to express their, their beliefs. When I was growing up in Israel, we didn't have this. You know, I'm just we're literally wondering. It's such a fascinating point. I'm just going to quote an interesting Maramokum on that, something which is unlikely. But there's, a, there's, a, there's one of the big um, commentators on foreign affairs in America is you know, one of the senior uh, commentators, a guy called Walter Russell Mead. Walter Russell Mead is now a columnist, let's say, one of the big, uh, a great eminence at the Wall Street Journal. And he's been around different places and he's a professor of international relations and he's, he's, he's a clever man and, and an interesting man. And I remember reading something from him 10, 15 years ago in which he was writing, he had a blog at the time in which he's writing about, he had different themes. And one of the themes he every so often touched on was Israel. And he just said, it was probably in the Obama years, and he just said, you have to understand that Israel is not fundamentally a Western country. It is a country with a Sephardic majority, right? And its Western roots or the ideas of kind of liberal democracy are far more shallow, and therefore it's got kind of got a thin veneer of it. But essentially, people look at Israel and they forget that this is an, a country which is non-majority Ashkenazic secular. And so he picked he picked up on it's this. Interesting it's interesting that he realized that. He realized that. It was and he understood that that was going on. And that boot, what we see today, the, we're straying slightly off topic, but it's not the whole political nexus. The whole political religious nexus is very important in today's Israeli politics is a creation of River Vadia's world. Without the Shas, without, with their, doubt, yeah. without, with their, without their 13 seats, there would be no possibility to have a block, an entirely 63-64 ruling coalition, which is, as you were, right-wing slash religious, right? So I was thinking about it after the recent elections, and I was thinking... You know, uh, you read the writings, shocking writings of, of Herzl, of the, the founder of the Zionist movement, and you see how he relates to religious people and to Rabbonim. He says, you know, we're willing to let them live, but we're never, not going to let them lead or anything like that. And actually, we need them for certain things, but we'll know how to put the hold on them. You know, when time comes, you know, we'll keep them small and limited without the powers. To be fair... What did he know? He grew up in a totally similar... No, no, I'm not going into his uh, specific story, but I'm talking about the plan, the plan of the Zionist movement to change the mentality and the the religious mentality of of Yiddishkeit, right? They made one mistake. They didn't know that there would be someone with the name of Ravad Yosef. That was, I was thinking, after the recent election. He, with his 
power and his charisma and his unique personality. That's a very interesting he, thing. He, he the long... ruined the plan. <laughs> he actually ruined the plan. I would also say that Begin also was part of that. Uh, there's no doubt about right. it. One but, thing led to it, another. But, right, but it comes together. I mean, these two things come the together. Shasper, without Begin's Mapaches Revolution 1977 taking the right wing, which was more friendly right. to tradition. Right. Shas wouldn't have... Uh, Shas grew out of that. Right. But I think I think we have to jump in. Uh, we have now literally... There's not many things we missed out in world politics over here. On the way to define Ravadia says, <laughs> you know, singular contribution. Let's go back a, a little bit over here. He was born in 1920. Where was he born? He was born in Rafaim in, 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 in Baghdad. And he was named... He was named, uh, he was named Karashma Bisral Yosef, but he was known because it was an Arabic speaking place. His actual, the name that he was known by locally, he was called Abdallah Yosef. Now, Abdallah, I always find it funny when people don't, it's a great thing. Avadia and Abdallah, Abdallah, the Evid of Allah, right? That's the translation of, of Avadia. They have to stress his last name was not Yosef. His first name was Yosef. His first name was Ovadia Yosef. Why? Because they had no family names then. His brothers and his father yeah. called themselves Ovadia. The family of Adia, Mishpachat right. of Adia. So it's as if his name was Ovadia Yosef Ovadia. Because his father was called Yaakov ben Ovadia. Oh, his grandfather right. was called Ovadia. So right. they called him, so his father called himself, right, that's what must have happened. Back in Baghdad, they had no family names. So his father's name was Yaakov ben Ovadia, right? So when they came and had to take a family name, the, the patriarch of the family took the family name, became Ovadia. Ovadia became the family name. But his son took his own second name, I think it happened. It yeah. probably happened because I, I know that it, it, here in the, in the in the Medina, in the beginning of the Medina, they really pressured anyone who got any official capacity, any position, to like change his name to something. Yeah, that's why you have these uh, like the chief rabbi of Tal for like decades was Harav Gad Navon, right? What was he Navon before? I don't know what it's Navon. Maybe maybe that was the original name. Harav Goren, who served Arav as Goren, the right? Gorenchik, right? Was Gorenchik, right? Right. right. And Moshe Sharet. Moshe Shertok. Moshe right. Shertok. Right. And David Ben-Gurion was? Uh, green. Green. Green, right. Green. So uh, it could be that they pressured him to choose a name, and this is the name that he chose for himself. But uh, like he used his second first name. I don't know why. But so, the, the fact is that his sons call themselves Yosef. Mm-hmm. And his father's sons call themselves Ovadia. Very interesting. As a family name. But I think it's worthwhile dwelling for a minute on who his family was. Because it's so important looking at Ovadia. Ovadia constantly, constantly saying, We need to go down to the people and find them and bring them back. For him, unlike many others who'd grown up, let's say, perhaps more in the Ashkenazi world, where the things were more separate from your religious family, you could ghettoize yourself. That was not the reality of the Sephardi world. The Sephardi world is far more porous. His own younger siblings, his own younger siblings, he was the oldest, when they came to, in the 1930s to, uh, no, in the 1920s to Palestine, as it was then, there at Israel, things started heating up with the Arab revolt. And then the undergrounds, the Makhtarot started forming in which the Haganah, the, the Irgun, the whatever the different ones became. And his younger siblings, some of the brothers, became drawn into that. And in fact, the next sibling along uh, became a, a commander in the Irgun. And people who were, had those positions of, you know, Menachem Begin's Irgun, and after the War of Independence, he joined 
he was part of the IDF. He became a senior, a general in the IDF, his younger brother. And his younger brother's son, I forget his name, was a commander in the Israeli Air Force. And interestingly, I didn't know this. He was uh, on one mission in 1980s, you know, the mid-1980s, the six or seven, whenever it was. He was meant to be flying out over over Lebanon, you know, when the Lebanese fighting was still ongoing. And at this last is the minute, first, is, the first Lebanon war, probably. Yes, yes, in the, in the 80s. So he was meant to be going out in his in his jet, and last minute, because it's some fam- family event, he couldn't go, and someone else took his place. That jet was shot down, and the navigator became uh, unfortunately the famous Ron Arad. Arad. So his yeah. Ravadio and Ravadio counseled him that this this nephew was very grief stricken by it and is guilt ridden and by, for, for many years. But what I'm saying is, his whole background. When we talk about you got to go down to the people, he was talking about his family. He was talking about his siblings. I don't know if you you mentioned the story in in, in your article uh, when when you wrote about Rav Yitzchak Yosef, but he himself he himself was taken out of yeshiva from Pat Yosef to help his father in a store in Machne Yehuda, and the Rashiva of Ezra Tia comes to the store and he tells the the father with Ovadia, he says he's helping me in the store. I need someone to help me. So Ezra Tia says, "I'll come help you," and he'll go to yeshiva, and that's what saved. Ravad Yosef from being a Machne Yehuda storekeeper. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. What an amazing day. I think I think in the version, I've kind of seen a version in which he, he, the actual delegation was a delegation of two. It wasn't just Ezra Atiyah. There was an, another gigantic figure. It was Ephraim HaKohen. Oh, it's Rabbi Shalom HaKohen's father. Rabbi Shalom HaKohen's father, who was, you know, Shalom HaKohen went on, just passed away. It was Nifteh, was a... You know the spiritual leader of, of Shas after after Ravadia. So, so in a sense, well, I think there's a word for it in Ivrit. You talk about Amami, right? You talk about a popular figure or a someone who's part of Amcha, the people, right? Ravadia came from that home, and and as you say, he had to fight with his father. His father said, you know, help at home and etc. This story uh, and this encounter happened when he was 10, 11, 12, something like that, because he had got admitted. He was an Iloy, photographic memory. He's just an incredible Balkishran. And he was admitted to Paratis very young. But already, and this is you see, and Rebbe I think I may have mentioned this before, but my theory about Godol Yisrael, there's a cliche. The cliche that, oh, all Godolian biographies are the same because they all start so young, they're all Iloyim. The trouble is the cliche exists for a reason, because generally speaking, I think you could look through and you can say an extraordinarily great figure, they start young. So you have figures like Rabbi Kiva and it's like, well, it wasn't so young, etc. And you have people in later generations or you always have exceptions. But Ravadia was a big Balkish and he started very young and they recognized it. And he was, this, this story with the Machani Huda story happened when he was, it was before Bamitza, if I'm not mistaken. By age 15, and this is remarkable, by age 15, he'd put out the first volume of Yabiyah Omer. Right. Omer was his great work. Now, it, was, it, was, it wasn't the, like the halachic works were to come, and it was on Hurriers, but something in which he said something very, very powerful, in which he said in the Hakdama to that, he wrote the words, Hinani he'onimimas, I'm humbled by my lack of, quoting obviously from the Musa of Rosh Hashanah Kippur, I'm humbled by my lack of attainments and deeds, and I'm not scared of anyone. We will see that in the next chapter. And we were going to see that in the next chapter. He really was not scared of anyone.
Thank you.